that uh that song guys provides a very a very good illustration of all that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks because um, we've been in Hebrews for a while and Hebrews has been showing us over and over and over again how Jesus uh, I mean he's it right that he is greater than uh, the author kind of picks something different each week but he's been showing how Jesus is it like we speak his name we call upon his name we put our faith in him all of these things because he is greater for us. In the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been in Hebrews 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And all of these have been pictures of how Jesus is greater than certain things that the Old Testament law used to be able to do. The way that we used to live, the way that we used to try to have things happen. And it's been cool because we see uh, each week, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this, but it's, it's been a variation of the same theme. Right, The law could do this, but Jesus can do this and this. Or the law could do both of these things, but not perfectly or not forever, and now Jesus can. Right. So we've talked about how Jesus, not only could he intercede, not only does he step in our place, but he can also sympathize with us in our weakness. The law couldn't, couldn't do that. Right? The law could make us right with God, but it, it didn't really care so much for us. We saw that Jesus brings us both God's peace and his righteousness. The law could do both for a time, but it couldn't do that perfectly. So we had that with Jesus. We also see Jesus as our eternal and our present reconciliation now and forever. It's what we saw last week, that he does something now and something permanently. So all of these kind of pictures are going to continue to build. The last one is going to come next week in chapter 10. I don't know if you've been waiting for it, but I have, but there's a part in chapter 10. I'll see if I can find it. Uh, verse 19, therefore brothers, and it begins this long summary. So we're almost to the end of, of this big long argument that the author of Hebrews is making. But in chapter 9, he's going to make one more little picture of how Jesus is greater, where he fulfills something that the Old Testament law couldn't do. And I have to be honest with you guys this week. I had not really made the distinction in my head that the author of Hebrews did. That what he's going to show us today is that Jesus does two separate things at the same time. That in my head, I always just kind of assumed these two things were the same thing. So if, if some of you guys are here today going, well, Jordan, as you're talking about it, as we go through it, I already knew that. Good for you. Like, thank you. You knew more than I did. Because when I was coming into this this week, I just assumed these two things were the same. But the author of Hebrews is going to make the case they're not. And Jesus does both. And the more I, I just sat with it this week, I realized, for many of you, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but for many of you, you guys have seen this to be true. And you have lived this to be true. And it explains a lot about where our world is. So today, we're going to see that Jesus' sacrifice both forgives us from sin, and it transforms us into God's image. Two things that I always assumed you came hand in hand, right? That you know, if I'm forgiven, I'm also being transformed. The author of Hebrews says, don't, don't assume these two things are necessarily correlated. They are, however, in Jesus, and that's a big deal for us. His sacrifice forgives us from sin, and it transforms us into God's image 
both of these together make us right with God. So today, Jesus, we're going to see, is greater than the law of sacrifice. So this is Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the most holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer can sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us a new covenant for life in Christ. Lord, please uh, just continue as you have done each week with us in Hebrews. Father, continue to forgive us because we are still yet learning what all that means and what all that looks like and, and how that takes place in our lives. Lord, we come to you this morning. May our, our hearts and our ears and our minds be able to just see and understand what your word is, is revealing to us, what your, your author was trying to tell these, these early Christians, Lord. In your holy name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, so the big connection that the author of Hebrews is making here in chapter 9 is that Jesus can both forgive us from sin and he can both transform us into God's image. So he begins verse 9 by pointing out that the law can't do both of these things, right? He says in verse 1, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it regulated how to correctly worship God and live in his holiness, right? It, it was set up essentially to forgive, right? This is kind of where the law comes from. It contained a holy place, verse 2, that reminded Israel of their need to be in God's presence, right? Now remember, this is why we spent that whole year in Exodus, because there's a lot of Old Testament temple stuff that comes up in the New Testament that you're like, oh, now I've heard something about that before. Here, the author says, remember, there was a holy place that had the tent, the lampstand, the table, the bread. All of these things, when we were looking at Exodus, showed us pictures of God's presence, right? That these things were to remind Israel they needed to be in God's presence. This was the holy place. But then verse 3 also tells us there was a most holy place. Verse 4 and 5 tell us, and it had the ark, the ark of the covenant, the altar of incense, the manna, Aaron's staff, and the law itself. So the holy place reminded Israel we have to be in God's presence. The most holy place reminded Israel we have to be made right with God. You've got presence, you've got righteousness, and I love because we get this when we're reading letters written to people. Verse 5, the author says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. This is the author saying, I know you guys know all of this, okay? So I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to go into all the details. So just as I am not going to go back and re-preach through you the 50 different, was it 50, the 10 different chapters of Exodus that we're talking about, the temple. Here the author of Hebrews says, don't, don't worry. I know you guys know all of this. But he gives one more little tidbit in verse 6, almost like you're having a conversation with somebody and they say, I know you know all of this, and then they continue to, to tell it to you anyways. The author gives us one little bit that his audience knows, but the author wants them to remember. Verse 6, verse 6, verse 7, the author tells us the priests used to go into the holy place to offer general sacrifices, but they could only go into the most holy place but like one time a year. And that was to offer sin or a sacrifice to cover the entire people. And then he gives us, our author, a little bit of commentary on, hey, guys, remember what God was trying to tell Israel in all of this. Verse 8, verse 9 tell us, the way into the holy places is not 
yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The holy place. The, that first section we're told in verse 9, it's symbolic for the present age. Basically, the author is saying, look, as long as you guys had to keep being reminded that you needed to be in God's presence, that, that righteousness piece was never going to stick. Because the priests could go into that most holy place, they could offer a sacrifice, they could make you right with God. But as soon as you forgot that, as soon as you forgot, oh, now I need to stay in God's presence, the author says, look, it, then you, you, it failed. Like It could not do what God was after. We saw this exact thing last week in chapter 8, verse 9, where we were told the Old Testament covenant failed with Israel because they did not continue. Right? They could be made right, but they could not remember, okay, now we need to stay in God's presence. So the author of Hebrews says, because both of those two places were still there, no matter how good the law was, no matter how pure the sacrifice under the law was, it could not both forgive and it could not transform. This is what the author tells us in verses 9 and 10, where it says that these gifts... These sacrifices offered under the law, and sometimes I, I intentionally love to use the ESV because it often gives us translations in English that are not comfortable. So then I can say, hey, remember when I read this part and it just sounded weird? There's something there. Verse 9 said, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Right? We don't tend to talk like that today. But there's something important in that phrase. That word conscious there is, is the Greek noun sunidesis, which is a fun word. It means the soul is distinguishing between what is morally good and what is morally bad, prompting one to do the former and shun the latter, commending one, condemning the other. So the, the Old Testament sacrifices were told in verse 1, they could show you how to be right with God. They could show you what worship looked like. They could show you what life looked like. But we're told here in verse 9 what it could not do is it could not perfect our ability to really know who God is. To know what's morally right, what's morally wrong, to be able to see the difference. This is a, a powerful statement that the author is making. He's basically telling all of these former Jews who have just now come to know Christ, look, the law could forgive you of your sin. But it could not transform you into God's image. And I was thinking about this this week. And, and an illustration, hopefully it will help you make sense of it, is let, let's say that I move to Virginia for the first time. And I have a bad habit from wherever I moved from of being on my phone while driving. I know in, in most states in our country, some form of that is illegal. In Virginia, it's completely illegal. Like, you just cannot be on your phone while driving. But let's say I move from another state where it's less strict, and I don't know that it's illegal to be on my phone. And I'm driving, I have my phone with me, and I'm texting or I'm whatever I'm doing while driving, and a cop sees me and pulls me over, right? That cop is going to do one of two things. He's either going to write me a ticket, because legally I have broken the law, or he's going to tell me, you know what, Jordan, I see that you're not from here, so I'm going to let you off with a warning this time, but I need you to know what you have done is break the law. 
So either whether I have been shown forgiveness or whether I have been convicted of the crime and then I go to court and I pay my fine, either way, that cop, what he's done for me is he has made me aware that what I've done is wrong. That's what the Old Testament law could do. The author of Hebrews, though, is showing us that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm never going to be on my phone again. I, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been pulled over or convicted of something, and then you're like, oh, thank you so much, officer, for letting me go. And then you, you speed right away from them right after they caught you. Like it, it, Just because you were convicted of something doesn't necessarily mean a transformation has taken place. This is a big thing that the author wants his audience to know, right? Forgiveness, transformation, not the same thing. We've been forgiven. You were forgiven under the Old Testament law, but you were not transformed. So the author says, now watch what happens when Jesus enters the scene. We're told in verses 11 and 12, he follows all these Old Testament protocols, right? He, he appears as a high priest. He enters into the tent. He goes into both holy places. He offers up a sacrifice. He secures a redemption, just like the system that was there. But the author gives a couple extra words in those verses to say, but Jesus does this better. He does this better. Verse 11, he appears as the high priest of the good things that have come. So Jesus does this better. Verse 11, he enters into the greater and more perfect tent. Jesus is doing this greater. He enters into the holy places and offers a sacrifice, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, verse 12. So this is a better sacrifice. Verse 12, he secures us in eternal redemption, right? Over and over and over again. Guys, Jesus fulfilled what all this stuff the Old Testament set up, but he can now do something the Old Testament law could never do. Verse 13, 14 tells us, Jesus' blood, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God. He, his blood, his sacrifice could, verse 14, purify our conscience from dead works. He can forgive us of our sin. But then the next thing it says, to serve the living God. Jesus can both forgive us from sin and transform us into God's image. Okay? Now, again, some of you guys at this point may be saying, I get that. Like, I've, I've seen that somewhere before. But the author of Hebrews says that this is a really big deal because simply forgiving, being forgiven of sin, being declared right in that moment of something you did in the past is not the same thing as being transformed into the image of God. Both of these held together, the author of Hebrews is going to point out, this is what makes reconciliation possible. If you look at verses 15 through 22, he uses this familiar illustration. It says that those uh, being able to not just forgive but transform, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So what Christ has done brings us to inherit something. And, and the author uses a, an analogy that, I mean, it's kind of cool. It still holds true today, right? You think about when, when someone dies, they usually leave behind a will. That says, okay, when I go away, this is how my estate, how my belongings, how all of this is going to be handled. 
I want this to go here. I want this to not go there. You know, all, all of this stuff that they write out ahead of time. But the author tells us the will never goes into effect. I guess there's technically a category of a living will. But typically, the will doesn't go into effect until someone dies, which is what we're told in verse 16 and verse 17. It's death that seals the oath. Once the death takes place, the inheritance can come. And the author says, this is why animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament, verse 18, verse 19. Their death enabled Israel to receive the inheritance of the covenant. And that, that blood being sprinkled on them that we're told in verse 20 and 21 and 22 was so that Israel could be forgiven of their sin. They could now be able to receive the inheritance. And I think it's, it's really cool because the author of Hebrews, in talking so much about death to a formerly Jewish audience, he's bringing them right back to Genesis 1. Because if you think about what we were made to do, being people in the image of God, the very first thing God tells us after he blesses us is to what? Be fruitful and multiply. To live and to live in my life. So then we see in Genesis 3, when sin enters the picture, we have now chosen to pursue something other than to live and live out this life, right? So most people say, yeah, that's why death comes as the punishment, because now we have not chosen to pursue life. We've chosen to pursue the opposite of this, be fruitful and multiply command, something that's not going to lead to life being death. So the author says, look, you guys know, just based off of how God made humanity, it should make sense to you all, early church, why death was so important, why a death was needed to bring new life, why death triggered this inheritance. And the author says, this is what you guys saw in the law. This is why all those animals had to be sacrificed at all these different times. But Jesus' death, now the author in verse 24 starts picking up saying that Jesus' death does something better. Christ's death was an act of intercession. So just as the animal's life stood in the place of Israel under the law, Christ's death stands in our place before God, verse 24. But Christ's death is different. And the author says, now here's the better death, the better inheritance that you guys have been given. Verse 24, Christ's death took place in the holy, or unlike the animal's death, which took place in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the things to come, Christ entered heaven itself. Verse 25, verse 26 tell us Jesus' death was a permanent, eternal, complete, perfect sacrifice. Didn't need to keep dying every single time for sin. His death was good enough once for all. It's this better death that appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin. So not like the Old Testament law that could do this temporarily. Jesus' death put it away permanently by the sacrifice of himself so that we can be in God's presence, verses 27 and 28. And I love, it, it almost feels like the author just kind of adds it on at the end. But verses 27 and 28 also clarify. He says, look, that's why when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to handle sin again. Which should tell us 
what they would told the early church. Look, Jesus already died, right? Your sins have already been forgiven. If you come to faith in Christ, you have been forgiven. That peace when Jesus comes back that he's going to be able to completely fulfill is now the transformation piece to fully bring us back into God's image, right? So in this, the author just says, guys, remember, forgiveness, transformation, not necessarily the same thing. We can be forgiven. That does not mean that we are transformed. But God says both of these things are required if we're going to be reconciled. Some of you guys know in your personal lives, that's true of our relationships with one another just as much as it is between us and God. We can forgive someone, but we still got to be transformed into the image of God if we're going to be truly reconciled with them. And God says, no, in Jesus, in Jesus, both of these things happen. So as we start to think this morning about, okay, it's a very nice theological point you've made, author of Hebrews. What do I do with that? I want to point us to a couple places in the New Testament where Jesus himself actually kind of draws on this distinction and then talks with his disciples about what that means. Okay, because this sometimes, sometimes as a pastor, you're like, okay, here's the big picture. We got to now whittle it down. And, uh, and it's always helpful when Jesus himself gives you a, here's how you whittle it down moment. So Jesus does this in a couple different places, right? So in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with a man named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. And this guy goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, look, you have been doing all these miracles that nobody else has. So clearly, you have to be right with God. Nicodemus understands Jesus, if there's anybody who's forgiven, right, who's in the right place with God, it would have to be you. Because you are doing things that nobody else can do, Jesus. So how, how do we get to that? Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, basically, you're right to recognize that I'm right with God. I've been forgiven. But you also need to be transformed if you are going to be reconciled. You cannot see the kingdom of God without this. And Nicodemus says, well, how can I be born again. He, he says, but I thought those were the same thing, Jesus. If you're forgiven, what else is there? Right? He, he fails to understand there's a difference. So Jesus clarifies this difference for him. He says, for God so loved the world, a verse you may be familiar with, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love the one that comes right after it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Right? Jesus says, I didn't show up to condemn the world. The Greek verb there meaning to point out who is right and who is wrong. Jesus says, my role was not to show up to convict. My role was to show up to show you what forgiveness looks like and to show you what transformation looks like and to pull you in to those. Now, when I was working through this this week, I realized that that can be an uncomfortable message because we still struggle with, okay, but where does the conviction piece fit in? Right? Like if Jesus says, I did not show up to condemn the world, but to save the world, to show us 
what forgiveness and transformation look like. Where does conviction fit in? And Jesus doesn't leave his disciples in the dark. Later in John, in chapter 16, as they're at the Last Supper together, he tells them it's for their benefit that he leaves because afterwards God will send them the Holy Spirit. And here's how he describes the Holy Spirit in verses 8 through 11. He says the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus says it, it may not have been my role to condemn, but don't get any mistake as if God is just overlooking everything. No, God does convict, but he has left that for his spirit. It says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then right after that Jesus says, so here's what the conviction of the Spirit will do. Verse 13, verse 14. It will guide you into all truth. It will declare to you the things that are to come. It will lead you to glorify me. So what the Spirit does when it works in our hearts is it leads us to be, essentially that verb convict means to make one feel the shame of brokenness. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, it helps us see where we are not right with God. But it does so in a way that then brings us to Jesus, where we now receive the forgiveness and the transformation. So God holds all of this together. But God makes it very clear for his disciples through Christ in the New Testament to say, but between the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son, there is only one of those that's for the believers to take part in. To actually go do on behalf of others. Dwayne Elmer notes this in his book, Cross-Cultural Servanthood. He says there's two metaphors that represent the choice we have every day as we live out our Christian faith. He says we can either choose the towel or the robe. Now I wish we don't have enough time to do all this today. But if you trace in the New Testament times when people are either given robes or people given towels... There's a, there's a lot of loaded imagery in there. Essentially, whenever you see someone showing up with a robe, it's conveying power. It's conveying conviction, right? I have the ability to say what's right, what's wrong. Whenever someone shows up with a towel, it's linked to service. It's linked to because I love you, because I want you to be right with God, let me do something for you. And at the last, well, not quite at the Last Supper, but in Matthew 20, no, this is at the Last Supper, excuse me. In John chapter 13, Jesus takes off his robe, and he puts on a towel, and he washes the disciples' feet. And at the end of it, he says, do you understand what I've done to you? Which before this week, I had, had never realized the significance that Jesus takes off his robe, and he puts on his towel. To his disciples, he says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You recognize that I am right to wear this robe. Good. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash 
one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus says, the Spirit will convict. What I have come to do is to take off my robe and to take up the towel because my sacrifice is better. Because I can bring you both a forgiveness from your sins, but I can also lead you into the image of God. This is what I have for you. To take off the robe and to put on the towel. The Elmer notes in his, his little study on this passage, he says, Jesus is not giving his disciples the call to convict others of wrongdoing. He's calling them to serve and to love others, to show them who God is, and to trust that the Holy Spirit will convict them to reconciliation. And I realize there's a, a fine line in there, in these three works that God does, between conviction and reconciliation, the transformation and the forgiveness piece. Because when I was reading it this week, guys, I, I started thinking, well, but what about places that talk about speaking the truth in love? And I realized we don't tend to struggle so much with the speaking the truth part to one another. Most of us are pretty confident in our convictions. And we want to make sure other people know our convictions. And I started thinking, okay, have I ever been in a situation where I saw someone that wasn't doing something that was quite right in my convictions. And so I went and I confronted them about it. And then they were, you know, they responded in hostility toward me. My reaction in that moment, usually, this is not great, but it, it's frustration. Like, man, how, I know I'm right on this. How, how dare you not receive this? And I'm not even playing the, and I'm your pastor card. I'm just, just saying, like, I, I know I'm right on this. How come we don't we don't get this. And I realized because the work that God has given me to do in his son is not the conviction work. But it is to trust the spirit does convict. What I'm called to do throughout the New Testament in places like we see in Hebrews 9 is to be imitators of Christ to take up the towel, to live for one another the life marked by being forgiven from sin and being transformed into the image of God and trusting, oh, our God does still handle the conviction piece, but only he is able to do so in a way through his spirit that actually leads people right into the forgiveness and the transformation because that's not often how where my convictions to other people lead them. Right? I just want them to know what they're doing is not right. That doesn't necessarily lead them into transformation. And I, I realize, guys, why this is a big deal is because when we experience a lot of change at once, we get tired of the transformation piece. And we pick up the conviction piece instead. I was talking with my mom about this actually yesterday. And I realized many of you guys are roughly in the same generation as my parents. Some of you are in the generation prior to my parents. The world over the past 60 years 
y'all have seen everything. Like, like just in the past 50, 60 years, I was trying to think about this. We've seen, you've seen political parties that don't look anything like they used to 40, 50, 60 years ago. You've seen, like my parents, I, this still blows my mind because in school we learn about it as something that took place in the past. But my, our parents, my parents, you guys lived through the integration of schools in the country. You guys lived through the, the sexual revolution in the 70s and then the church purity culture that came right after that in the 80s. And, like all of, you count politics, you count culture, you count race relations. All of these things look very differently now than they used to. So you guys have living examples of saying, you know what, we can go through great lengths to make acts of forgiveness happen. And we should. Because we're seeing forgiveness is key for reconciliation. But you guys have equally seen how just because we make an act of forgiveness happen, it does not mean that our hearts towards other people have changed. You, you guys, many of you have seen this far greater than I have. And I realized, you know, it's easy for me to stand and to tell you, guys, reconciliation means forgiveness. It means transformation. Like that, it should be so obvious. But when you guys have lived so much seeing transformation taking place, like I was even talking with my mom about computers. For some of you guys, you remember when the first computer was made, let alone the fact that it's now in my pocket. Like, it, you've seen so much transformation that at some point in our human nature, we just say, I'm done, right? Like, it is much easier for me to not deal with transformation, to just say, I need to get the forgiveness piece, right? What's right and what's wrong, and then I need to get to conviction. Like, like we're done with the whole transformation thing. We just need to stick to what's right and what's wrong. And during that big time period, you saw a lot of revival movements in the church. You heard a lot of big name speakers that preached forgiveness and conviction. Because we were tired of the transformation piece. And when we look at a lot of issues that our world is still wrestling with today, we have given up on being transformed to the image of God. Because we're so clinging to conviction and to forgiveness. Guys, I don't want us to miss. To miss that we can live in a world where we make efforts to make things right and wrong. But that it never changes our hearts. Because God says, I need both forgiveness and I need both transformation for true reconciliation to actually take place. So when we look at our world and we see things, we're like, well, there were laws passed there. There were policies put in place there. or We just don't do that anymore. That should have fixed things. That's just the forgiveness piece. A transformation still has to occur for reconciliation to take place. You guys know this very well, m more than I do, and I, I, I love that about y'all, that, that when, I, when I'm sharing this with you, this, this is still feels fairly fresh for me, but you guys say, no, we, we know very well how forgiveness and transformation don't necessarily come hand in hand, and we can see we need both if we are actually going to live 
out God's reconciliation on earth. So consider just three application questions today as we try to bring this on home. The first one, are my efforts in the lives of others centered on conviction or love? Essentially, are we attempting to live more of the towel or the robe in that situation? Am I working harder to proclaim God's truth? This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Or am I working harder to actually bring people into living with what God has said, right? Am I proclaiming it? Am I just telling it to people? Or am I actually drawing them in to let them be transformed by it? Second question, if someone heard the way that I talked about my convictions, would it lead them into the forgiveness and transformation piece? Which is incredibly hard for me. But the way that, that we can talk about what we believe is right and wrong does not necessarily lead people into forgiveness and into transformation. In God, praise him, it does. Praise him that the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son go hand in hand, that our God holds all these things together. But we don't. So maybe today we just need to say, okay, God, am I actually, when I say, you know, this, I, we just need to do this, am I actually leading people into God's image or into his law? And the third question, whose feet would I not wash? Whose feet would I not wash? Because at some point in our journey of getting fed up with change, we've all kind of individually decided whose feet we wouldn't want to wash. And God says this is not so. Not, not today. Not in my kingdom. Praise God that he loves us first. I mean, I'm just, I am grateful that he did not wait for me to get the forgiveness and the transformation piece right before he stepped in. Praise God that he holds both forgiveness and transformation together in Christ, that he holds conviction in the work of the Spirit, that he draws all these things together. And thank, I praise God today that he has not called me to take up the work of the Holy Spirit in conviction because conviction is exhausting. But no wonder the scriptures talk about there being freedom in Christ and being forgiven and being transformed. And God says, this is the work I promise I'm going to do. We're going to work over here on this side. So as we, we wrestle with this this morning, let's go before him in prayer. We say, Father, thou blessed spirit, author of all grace and comfort, come, work repentance in my soul. Represent sin to me in its odious colors that I may learn to hate it. Melt my heart by the majesty and the mercy of God. Show me my ruined self and the help there is in Christ. Teach me to behold my creator, his ability to save, his arms outstretched, his heart big for me. May I confide in his power and in his love. May I commit my soul to him without reserve. May I bear his image. May I observe his laws. May I pursue his service and be through time and eternity a monument to the efficacy of his grace, a trophy of his victory. Father, make me willing to be saved in this way, perceiving nothing in myself but all in Jesus. Help me not to only receive him but to walk 
in him, to depend upon him, to commune with him, to be conformed to him, to follow him. Imperfect, but still pressing forward, Lord. Not complaining of labor, but valuing rest. Not murmuring under trials, but thankful for my state. God, give me that faith, which is the means of salvation and the principle and the medium of all godliness. May I be saved by grace through faith, live by faith, feel the joy of faith, do the work of faith. Perceiving nothing in myself, may I find in Christ all wisdom, all righteousness, all sanctification, all redemption. And Lord, we add to that this morning to just say, we know that this is just the beginning today. That there is a long, long work that you not only desire to do in our hearts, but in the hearts of everyone uh, across our nation, across our world, Father. Father, you have seen how we bristle against being changed into your image and that we cling to our convictions because it makes us feel the peace and the rest that we so desire, Lord. You knew that this is what your early church was wrestling with and you see the same struggle on your people today. Father, thank you for showing us that just to be forgiven is not the same as to be transformed. But God, you do both. You offer both in your son. And that we can trust your spirit, Father, in its, in its perfect way, in its knowledgeable way, in the way that it intimately knows us. It will never cease to show us how we need you. And it will continue to work and move in the lives of others, Lord, if we allow that work to be done in us. In your holy name we pray.